maybe start there. How do we get it? It's a great question. Um, and, you know, what I can tell you is that these, these chemicals are synthetic organic chemicals, so they are intentionally made. Uh, and that's actually part of the reason there's such a problem in terms of, uh, you know, they stick around for a very long time in the environment, mainly because nature hasn't developed any, any ways to, to make them go away. You know, I, I don't have an exact history as to exactly when the first uh, fluorochemical was made, uh, but, you know, the, the various manufacturers, including 3M and, and DuPont and others, uh, started making them um, probably around around 50 or so years ago. I, again, I don't know the exact uh, exact date, but they were being used in a, a wide variety of uh, consumer industrial products. Um, and uh, the, the strength of the carbon-fluorine bond, uh, but also the fact that um, the, the carbon-fluorine bond, which is really the, the heart of this, this chemical class definition, um, it, it imparts an ability to repel both oil and water, uh, and that's why we, we find them in a lot of different products. Um, before you go further, we use, can, we, sure. can we say what those products are? I mean, it was man's desire for <clears throat> Teflon, for Scotchgard, for Gore-Tex, for waterproofing that led to this. And I just sort of maybe could just talk a little bit more about that, our need for fire retardants. What, what is it, the, the special qualities with that, it repels oil and water, and it was man just wanting to find these chemicals and put them on cloth and put them in fire retardant, and that's how it got into our groundwater? Uh, I mean, it simplifies the story quite a bit. But, yes, uh, essentially, they, these have been used in a lot of different products. Um, and, uh, you know, I think the initial thinking uh, was that these were relatively inert, uh, that because of the carbon-fluorine bond uh, and the fact that these were not reactive chemicals, uh, most of them, that that would mean that they would not cause any sort of issue uh, with interacting with biological systems. We now know that not necessarily to be the case, uh, but that was some of the original thought way back when. You know, we want to know a little bit more about how does it then get from cloth, from Teflon, from fire retardant, how does it get down into the groundwater, and then does, how, how does it then end up in drinking water? Just talk a little bit about the process and how it got from those products and where <clears> it resides, how it is possibly inject, ingested, Drinking water, other ways that it gets into humans and animals. Sure. So, so the the, the pathway, um, but whereby it gets from you know some product or some material that's being used into someone's, you know, their fish or their glass of drinking water, is is fairly complex, and and it actually speaks to uh, one of the major challenges with this group of compounds. Um, that the pathway is going to be different if the the material was in a firefighting foam. Uh, than if it was in your carpet, um, and uh, and that's one of the, the big challenges is trying to understand those the differences in those pathways and the way that some of these different chemicals move along those paths. Um, I'll just say that one of the reasons that we have a lot of discussion about the firefighting foams in particular is because it's a fairly direct pathway uh, in that you know the foam when it was used was typically applied on soil. Uh, a, a fire department might have applied it um, at a fuel uh, spill or a, a, a car crash site, um, and it, it runs off the off the, the soil or off the, the, the asphalt or, or whatever into the soil, and then percolates down into the groundwater where it then can be moved. And eventually, someone might uh, might tap into that drinking water source uh, and, and pull up the water and, and put it in their glass. I know that you are a chemist, but we, I want to talk about some of the health effects, and then we will go to the questions that are coming in, lots of questions from people who are on this webinar. But it is my understanding from talking with the Michigan Department of Public Health that the potential for PFAS 
can cause health effects include testicular cancer, kidney cancer, ulcerative colitis, thyroid problems, developmental problems, potential miscarriages. And I want to know if you can talk about some of those health effects and how severe they are. What are some of your worries as a chemist seeing this make its way through the chain and into animals and plants and humans? How worried do we need to be? How severe is this? I, I'll try and answer as best I can, uh, but I'll just say up front, um, I am a, I'm a chemist and not a toxicologist. And so, you know, when I uh, try and do my work, I really focus on trying to understand how people are exposed to the chemical. Um, and to be honest, it, the, the issue is complex enough just trying to get to that answer. Um, I, I certainly work with plenty of toxicologists who are, who are concerned about these group of compounds. You know, I think some of the health effects you, you listed there um, are, were, were discussed or, or documented as part of the uh, C8 science panel, which is for PFOA, one of, these group of, one of the compounds in this group of classes, uh, this class of compounds. Uh, and so, you know, I think that is a, is a pretty good source to turn to in terms of that information. Um, for me, you know, I, I essentially, uh, as much as the as the concern is about uh, public health, you know, if I'm going to do my job right, I, I need to make sure I, I hand it off to someone who is an expert in that. So I, I really, I try, I try and stay away from talking about the, the health effects. What I will tell you is that uh, these compounds uh, are very persistent in the in the environment, and again, um, that's part of the concern is that they're they're not going to go away. And so, if there is going to be a health effect. Uh, uh, at some point because of uh, exposure to these chemicals, um, because of their persistence, that there's a potential for that to occur for over a very long period of time. That's, that's one of my motiv motivating reasons for doing this research. So you, in a speech recently on September 28th, you were talking about the game changer when the EPA made a, what do you call it, when they decided that it would be, that they should say when um, it becomes dangerous. Parts per trillion. It's May 19th, 2016. Can you talk a little bit about that, how the EPA stepped in and how this made people perhaps more aware of PFAS than they were in the past? Sure. So um, prior to that, uh, in, I believe, 2009, uh, EPA had issued what they call a provisional health advisory uh, for drinking water contaminated with PFOS and PFOA, uh, PFOS and PFOA, the two most widely studied uh, compounds in this class. And um, a provisional health advisory is just that. It's provisional. It's not, not permanent. Um, and the levels were higher than the, than the health advisory that uh, the final health advisories that came out in, in, in May of 2016. Um, and uh, as a result, there were, there were still some water systems that were above the provisional health advisory. Um, and, uh, and then when the, the new health, uh, health advisory came out, it was essentially no longer provisional, uh, a lot more water systems became uh, concerned because they had uh, water supplies that were above, had tested above the health advisory. Uh, there are systems here in Colorado, uh, Michigan, uh, obviously, uh, but really all over the country. Uh, there are a number of water systems that have, uh, or have, have levels above that. So the Michigan PFOS Action Response Team has been spreading out throughout the state of Michigan. They've been out ahead, and that's why we have we had two states of emergency this summer, Parchment and Cooper Township. It's why we're finding out about fish that you can't eat in the Huron River and about Air Force bases that's happening in Escota. And just we are many people say that we have been out ahead, the state of Michigan, in finding PFOS. There's a lot of concern. The questions I'm going to from the audience, thank you so much for writing in these questions. Let me start with this one says, what is the tipping point in regards to parts per trillion? When should communities become concerned? So it's my understanding the EPA says 75 parts per trillion 
is when it becomes unsafe. Well, uh, just to be clear, I believe the the health advisory the EPA has issued is uh, 70 parts per trillion uh, or nanograms per liter combined for PFOS and PFOA. Um, it, this is part of the, the, the complication of the, the issue um, because there are a variety of ways that people can be exposed to these chemicals. You, you mentioned the fish uh, advisories. Um, you know, these, these compounds can be in your drinking water. They can be in the fish you eat. They can be in uh, the, the lettuce you grow uh, sometimes if, if they're in the contaminated soil or in, in the water. Um, and they can also be coming from the, uh, the dust that you ingest uh, because you have uh, carpets in your house that are sand repellent. And teasing out the importance of the different routes of exposure. How much are you getting from your kind of just living in the house that has sand repellent uh, carpets or, or clothing? How much are you getting from um, the, the the fish you eat versus uh, the the vegetables that you, that might be grown with either contaminated water or contaminated or in contaminated soil, or how much is coming from fast food wrappers? You know, those are all uh, questions that are difficult to uh, figure out. Um, and and the I, I would hesitate to say that there's a, a tipping point. You know, there is essentially a, a number that EPA has issued for for drinking water. Uh, trying to, and they've tried to account for those various routes of exposure that people might have, um, but it's a fairly complicated issue of, of where people are getting uh, their PFAS from, and, it, and it's very much going to be dependent on their local conditions. And, and to some extent, you know, if they if they if they eat a lot of fish, for example, from contaminated river or not. Uh, and I think that's that's kind of gets at the the heart of the uh, at least one of the issues of, of complex issues of this uh, this group of compounds. Another question from someone on, in, in this webinar. Thank you so much for answering that question. Here's another one. What is the main factor in migration in groundwater? Dissolution, et cetera, question mark? <laughs> that's, that's much more closer to my, uh, my direct expertise. Um, the, the short answer is there are two, th two kind of types of things that uh, affect how quickly these compounds are transported in groundwater. Uh, the, uh, the first is uh, what we call chemical-specific factors, so which chemical you're, you're talking about. Um, if, if people haven't uh, done a whole lot of reading on these compounds, they come in uh, different flavors. Uh, they're what we call short-chain versus long-chain compounds, and uh, that makes a difference in terms of how quickly they're transported uh, in a groundwater setting. The other thing, uh, so, so essentially you have to understand that not all of them are transported at the same rate, uh, and you will see the chemicals, even the same system, being transported differently. The second thing that, that you could say is, is equally important is the specific conditions uh, at the site uh, in terms of these compounds will interact with uh, any sort of organic matter in the soil or in, in the aquifer material. Uh, they, the, the pH of the water will have an effect on how they interact with that, that, that solid phase and how quickly they're, they're transported. And there's some growing evidence to suggest that it's also a factor of, of how well saturated the, the, the soil is. So essentially, they might move a lot more slowly through a, uh, a, a, um, what we call the Vado zone, essentially the soil underneath your feet that is not completely filled with water. Uh, as compared to when they get to a groundwater table 
which is fully saturated with water, the, 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 the suspicion is that these compounds would move more rapidly in a, in a saturated groundwater condition than through a uns, what we call unsaturated uh, vadosone system. Another question. You mentioned in your opening remarks that within the broader realm of PFAS chemicals, you're specifically concerned about polyfluoroalkyl alkyl acids. Can you elaborate on why you're specifically concerned about this compound? Has there been more testing done that examines the impact of polyfluoroalkyl alkyl acids on the human body rather than on other PFAS chemicals? So just to be clear, excuse me, um, I think I, I stated uh, I was particularly concerned about the perfluoroalkyl acids, and that's it's it's a uh, you might say I'm uh, I'm um, uh, splitting hairs here, but if the chemistry is really important. The difference between a perfluorinated compound and a polyfluorinated compound is actually really really critical, uh, and so the perfluorinated species, the the chemicals, uh, do not have any. Uh, carbon uh, hydrogen bonds. They only contain carbon fluorine bonds. Uh, I mean, there can be other carbon sulfur bonds and that sort of thing, but uh, they don't contain, uh, specifically, they don't contain any carbon hydrogen bonds. And what that means is they're very uh, unlikely to transform under natural conditions in the environment. Uh, and so the reason I'm particularly concerned about the perfluoroalkyl acids or PFAAs uh, uh, is a, the acronym we use, is because of that persistence uh, and the fact that they are really very, very difficult to break down uh, uh, under natural conditions. And that's why there's been a lot more study on the perfluoroalkyl acids, uh, such as for PFOS and PFOA, uh, because those are the ones that will, will really stick around for a long time. Yeah, and can you expand on that? So it's called the forever chemical. I think a lot of people, I know you're a chemist and you're you're more involved in what happens with the chemical itself, but so many people listening are concerned and people living in townships where they're being told that the water's not safe to drink wonder what's going to happen to their bodies. And it's called the forever chemical because, as you said, it doesn't break down. So it doesn't break down in the environment, and that means it stays in the body. I mean, once you've ingested it, it never goes away? So those are, those are actually two separate uh, concepts. Uh, so, uh, but I'm glad you gave me a chance to kind of clarify. When we talk about chemicals not breaking down in the environment, um, it basically means that once they're there, they are there until who knows when. Um, there are people who have made estimates of um, what we call half-lives, which is the idea there is that if a chemical uh, actually does degrade over time, um, the way we characterize that is how long does it take for it to get to half its concentration. So, you know, we talk about radionuclides having certain half-lives because they will decay in the environment, and other organic chemicals will also degrade in the environment, uh, and they have their half-lives associated with that. Um, and those are typically measured in, you know, they can be days or, or weeks or, or months or years, uh, depending on the chemical. But when we talk about the half-lives of these compounds in the environment, particularly the perfluoroalkyl acids, anyone who lists a half-life is, for the most part, uh, for the perfluoroalkyl acids, is mostly guessing. Um, I've seen half-lives estimated on the order of 100 years, uh, but those are really just extrapolations uh, from what we can measure in a meaningful time frame in a laboratory, which is typically, you know, a laboratory study may go a year if you're lucky. The difference to what you just uh, mentioned is uh, what we talk about, the persistence in the body. So um, we do also similarly talk about half-lives in the human body. Uh, but that is not quite the same as what we talk about uh, in the environment. When we talk about half-lives in the human body, what we're talking about is how long does it take for uh, me, in, in, if I've ingested 
PFOA for that chemical to be eliminated from my body. And, and it can be eliminated a variety of different ways, but essentially I can excrete it, either uh, fecal or urinary excretion are, are most common, uh, and, and I rid my body of those chemicals. Uh, and so the only way that will happen is if I've, uh, I've ended the exposure. So if I'm no longer taking in the chemical, uh, then over time my body will naturally kind of clear uh, these chemicals uh, from, from it. Um, but that doesn't mean that they're degrading. It just means that they're being transferred out of my body. Um, but one of the other concerns, I talked about the half-lives of these compounds in the environment. One of the concerns about these compounds is that they also exhibit long uh, retention times, if you will, half-lives in the human body. So they will stick around on the order of several years, depending on the compound, in the human body. Um, but if you, again, if you, if you end the exposure, if you're no longer drinking the contaminated water or eating the contaminated fish, uh, the chemicals will decline over time in your body because you will excrete them, essentially. Another question that has is along the same line. Inhalation may be an issue. Um, so the caller, webinar participant, says, are PFAS volatile? And I think you've answered this, but maybe you could just explain that a little more in the way that only a chemist can. <laughs> <laughs> I'll try. Uh, the short answer is that most uh, PFASs are not volatile, uh, which means uh, they, they don't get into the gas phase. You, and inhalation is not, direct inhalation is not really an issue for most of these compounds. There are a handful of chemicals um, uh, that are actually of the polyfluorinated kind, so they're not the perfluorinated acids, but the polyfluorinated kind, which are... Um, are potentially volatile, and, and there have been some studies that show there, that can be a, an inhalation for those chemicals can be an important source of exposure, but it's, it's a relatively small subset of, of this broad group of chemicals. Most of the compounds we're talking about um, uh, when we talk about PFAS are non-volatile. Another question, what could an individual do in terms of drinking water filtration and otherwise remove exposure, and how does that scale to communities? It's a great question. Um, I, there's been a lot of interest in this question because when there's been contamination found, uh, there's been a lot of people getting bottled water. And I know that there's been a lot of effort to put uh, on uh, household or at least tap um, point of use, point of entry devices. So these are small scale, um, typically uh, either a carbon filter, an anion exchange resin, or a reverse osmosis system. Uh, and those can go on the household uh, level and, and as Related to the question about scale, it's, it's those same three technologies which are most commonly employed for uh, treating them at a community scale. Uh, so it's, it's the same idea, but it's at a, at a smaller household scale. Um, of those three technologies, all three can, uh, and, and can work and have been used. Uh, the issue, I would say, is that uh, when you have a carbon filter or an anion exchange resin, um, there's a little bit more maintenance that has to go in uh, in terms of frequent uh, change out of the carbon filter or the anion exchange material, um, whereas a reverse, osmos reverse osmosis system is a little bit more uh, long-term. They're typically more expensive, but they're also kind of a longer-term performance. You don't have to worry as much uh, about change out of the carbon or, uh, or resin material with a reverse osmosis type technology. Another question, what do we know about the movement of PFAS dissolved in bedrock groundwater? Is there an interaction with iron interaction? And does absorption play a role? 
So that uh, is a getting to pretty technical chemistry there. Uh, the short answer is they do interact with solid phases. Um, we think that the higher levels of iron uh, and other uh, polyvalent cations, uh, to use a chemical term, uh, do imp uh, impact how well these compounds stick or absorb, uh, to use the, 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 the questioner's uh, terminology, uh, stick to the solid phase, and that will affect how rapidly they're transported down gradient. Um, but it's still, there's still a lot of work to be done to, to really uh, tease all of that out. Um, you know, I have been studying these compounds for for close on 17 years, uh, but we still haven't completely figured out all the details of that uh, because of the, the the true complexity of this this group of compounds. So we have another question that is more about health, and you can just if this is something you don't want to answer, I will understand. But it's an interesting question as we start learning more and more about PFOS, and it's so new. So I'm going to throw it out and see what what you might want to answer. Firefighter turnout gear is very high in total fluorinated compounds, and firefighters have very high cancer rates. So shouldn't we focus on health effects in the highest exposed people? I think this is interesting because as we learn more about it and where there are areas where it's turning up, should we sort of change our focus? Hello, everyone. Carl here, a five-minute warning. So start to wrap it up. Five more minutes. The other thing I'll add is that, you know, firefighters presumably are exposed to a lot of other chemicals via inhalation of, of smoke and, 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 and so on. And so I'm not at trying to say that it's not an important issue, but I do think that uh, solely focusing on uh, firefighters in exposed population um, might make it very complicated because of the other things that they're being exposed to, as well as the fact that the chemical composition is not exactly the same uh, when they're directly kind of interacting with the chemicals versus people who are drinking uh, contaminated groundwater down gradient. Tell us more about what happens when PFOS is dumped into rivers. This is a question from a, a webinar participant, but specifically our Huron River, saying that PFOS floats on the surface, which is why it foams up when the wind hits it, and MDEQ is considering vacuuming it up. Um, you may not be able to answer some of these, but I think it's an interesting question just to tell a little bit more about what happens in our rivers. Very briefly, because I know we don't have a whole lot of time, you know, these are air-water interface surfactants. They do tend to stick up near the surface of the river. Their presence in foam is not at all surprising. In fact, it's actually a technology some folks are examining to remove these chemicals as you bubble air through and you, you generate lots of foam and then you take the foam off and treat it. But they also will go deep into, uh, they have the potential to get mixed into the, the river if uh, that river is what we call a losing a river or stream uh, and that it flows into groundwater, you can get uh, the groundwater contaminated on either side of the river and underneath. So it's, it's a complicated issue. Um, but then, of course, there's also the concern about uh, accumulation in fish living in that river. So I don't know specifics of the, the Huron River uh, that much other than I've, I've seen, I think, some of the photos around. Uh, but it's, it's absolutely true that these compounds have the potential to be uh, at high concentrations in some of those foams. Uh, whether or not the foams are were rising just because of the PFAS or because of the other compounds, the other things that might be in the river, uh, it's a whole other question that we probably won't have time for. We are winding up. What do you wish we knew, and maybe what do you wish reporters and public would not ask you <laughs> about PFAS? We know that we wish you could answer all the questions for us, and we want answers from you, I think, on many fronts because we don't have enough experts to go to. What do you wish that we could take away from this that we should know about PFAS that obviously we, we, are, we have many questions and what do you wish we would take away from our conversation? I think the important thing to, for everyone to keep in mind is that um, <clears throat> these compounds uh, are not 
all the same. And so when we talk about PFAS as a group of compounds, they have a uniting characteristic and they have this uh, component of their, their, their structure is a perfluorinated tail. But beyond that, they have widely different behavior in the environment, different uh, potential for bioaccumulation and so on and so forth. And so that's, that's what makes the, the study of them so interesting, but it also makes it so complicated. And so a, a big take-home message, I would say, is that, you know, recognize there's a diversity of behaviors for these compounds, uh, and, and we, have to, we have to address that when we're trying to understand and, and take predictive measure, or, or protective measures for people being exposed to them. And can you say anything about ridding bodies and ridding the land of these? We just have to stop producing these chemicals, is there anything else you can say for people who are worried about it, how we can stop the, the PFAS from spreading? It's, it's, there are literally thousands of people uh, throughout the U.S. and around the world working on that question. Um, I wish there were an easy answer to it.